Welcome to Forecast, wealth strategies and investing advice for you. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. And welcome to the Forecast. We're so glad you're with us again this week. We've got an exciting show for you. Three segments, as usual. Lots of interesting stuff going on. Boy, this administration gives us plenty to talk about week after week. The markets are roaring. The stock prices only go up. Interest rates seemingly only go down. The news is always good. The children are always above average. It's just fabulous. Okay, so for our three sections today, we're going to be joined by one of my great friends, Michael Vogelzang, who is president and chief investment officer at Boston Advisors. They've been around since 1997. Michael has been on CNBC with me before. He's, he's, I, I hate saying this for a real record, but he's like a genius. He's really articulate, and we're, I'm psyched. You're going to really like to hear from Michael. Then, of course, Matthew Leffingwell, who was, uh, of course, with House Ways and Means, now a political analyst at Farr Miller and Washington, is going to explain Washington and Wall Street for us. And we've got lots to talk about there. Uh, Senator Corker and President Trump are not getting along. They're not playing nicely in the sandbox this week. And then, finally, we have uh, uh, Jameer Morrow is joining us to discuss Bitcoin and cyber currencies. And as our special financial investment interpreter this week, uh, Christina Saunders, who is a senior vice president with Farr Miller in Washington and a CFP. And finally, running the board, head of operations, and giving us a perspective on all things, I think, uh, Soviet, Russian, and Eastern Bloc, <laughs> is the famous Boris. Boris, glad you're with us. Good to be back. Yes, indeed. Yeah, da. Okay, uh, we're going to begin with Farr's investing creed. Here we go. I believe that first and foremost, it's the client's money and their needs come first. Number two, I believe old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. Three, I believe you should take the least risk you can to achieve your goals. I believe that money is hard to make. I believe that complicated trading schemes and get-rich-quick promises are evil. I believe that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. I believe that when a client hires us as their investment advisor, we have a sacred moral obligation to uphold and do our absolute best for them every minute of every hour of every day. And number eight, finally, I believe in free markets, democracy, capitalism, and that the United States of America is the greatest country in the world and that we're all blessed to be here. Want to argue with me? Call in sometime. I'm happy to take you on on any one of those. Okay, so I know that Michael Vogelzang is not going to argue with me tonight. Are you, Michael? Welcome, Michael. We're so glad you're with us. I'll argue with you anytime, anywhere, Mr. Farr. I'm uh, thrilled to be on. Thanks for having me. God bless you. Michael Vogelzang, one of the smartest investment guys I know, and welcome to the Farcast. We're glad you're on. So, Michael, uh, it doesn't seem that markets ever go down. This is a wonderful time to be an investor, huh? And, the, and people don't have to worry about anything, and we don't really worry about risk. Everybody just buys stuff, and it goes up. What am I missing? Yeah, no, you're, this, is, this, is the, uh, this is the sweet part of the cycle for sure. Um, you know, it, it, if, you, if you think about how, how people... Uh, perceive investments. It it very much goes along with this cycle of of deep fear uh, coming out of the global financial crisis in 2009, 
people were uh, constantly looking over their shoulder. Everyone was hesitant to put money into the market because volatility was high. We had a couple of shakeouts in 11 and 12, uh, kept people on their toes. Uh, you know, the markets have gone up so much since then. At this point, people are incredibly, um, well, they're just very comfortable with where the where the market is. And, and um, Well, last week, Kenny Polcari said, last week, Kenny Polcari said that, that complacency was the real danger at this point and, and was worried that investors just were, were, were becoming, I guess, not as concerned about risk. Is that is that sort of what you're saying? That's sort of what we're saying, right? I mean, it's it's. Um, I, I feel two minds here, Mike. Uh, we have we have two different things going on. One is um, when when we work with our institutional investors, we still see great skepticism. People believe this market's expensive. They're they're taking money off the table on a regular basis. That's a very good long term sign. On the other hand, there's very little volatility. There's very little scare. There's there's no no fear being put into the into the into the into the hides of people who invest, and so it, it's it's a very odd circumstance. Frankly, it's never really been involved in something like this in my entire career. Right. Now, um, when they take when you say they're taking money off the table on a regular basis, is that because they've had success? They're reaping profits. They're making risk yes. decisions. Are they market timing? Tell what are they doing when they take all, off that all, cash? All of the all of the above. So. So if you're a, a classic endowment or a, or a pension plan or an insurance company and, and you have 60% of your money in the stock market, uh, over the last five or six years, that's grown quite a bit on a percentage basis. So you right. might be at 70%. Right. Um, historically, people would let that, let that money ride, right? That, that most folks don't rebalance. But I think Wall Street has done a good job of preaching to people that they should rebalance when they get above their targets. And so what we see is our institutional investment clients are pulling their markets, pulling their pulling their values back to their targets. So they sell from 70% to 60. Um, that that consistent behavior, which we're seeing this time, we have not seen before in other cycles. And and, and I've been in this business for almost 35 years. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's new behavior, and I I think it's actually very healthy for the market. Uh, 35 years? Have you really been doing this for 35 years? I forget. Yeah, almost, I, I forget how, as, that you're much older than I am. Almost as long as you, my friend. I, I think I, what, you. you're you're what a month older than I am. <laughs> Something like that. I, yes. I, th I think so, uh -huh. and I'll never forget it. Yeah. By the way. Okay. Now wait a minute. So are the high net worth clients? Are the are, are Fred and Ethel with you know a million bucks? Are they rebalancing too, or or are they missing something? And uh, uh, what are your clients doing? Yeah, I don't think so. Well, our, our clients are being cautious and being a little more hesitant about going into market. Uh, we, we certainly pared back our investment strategies for our high net worth clients. Um, I think the, the folks that are, are concerning are those that have just been riding this and are continuing to add new money as the market gets to these highs. And, and that's what's causing, I believe, this lack of volatility. Everybody keeps dripping money into the market. It's this fear of missing out, as, as we've heard, this FOMO. Ah, the FOMO. Say, it, it keeps going up. I have to participate. It keeps going up. Bonds are a bad place to be. So I, I do think there's an element uh, in the marketplace that's, that's simply adding to their already winning positions. And, and I think that they're going to end up sadly um, not, not very happy here. I want to bring in Christina Saunders. Christina, what are you hearing from your clients? I mean, are your clients, you, you have high net worth clients, correct? Yes, I do. So are, what are you hearing from them? Are they concerned about markets? Are, are they rebalancing? What are they doing? Well, I would say it's been very quiet this summer. I am not hearing from a lot of clients. The clients that I do speak with uh, are somewhat nervous about prices, but there does seem to be the complacency you all are speaking of 
With regard to rebalancing, um, we are doing that for our clients on their behalf. So they trust us. Um, we set an initial uh, asset allocation for them when they first became clients, and we really do a good job of sticking to that. And per our chief investment officer, Taylor McGowan, recently, um, you know, spoke to the portfolio managers and said, hey, we should be, um, you know, taking some profits and bringing people's uh, asset allocations into place. Don't let it ride at this point. So it's just part of the normal discipline for you, right? right? Yes. Okay. Yes. But are you, you, so you haven't heard from clients, so you're not hearing the concern either. Uh, Mike Vogelsang says we're not hearing the same level of concern, right, Michael? Oh, there's no question. Um, okay. The, 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 the market's... <laughs> the, the client phone calls have been few and far between the summer. Uh, you know, the, the, should the, they be the concerned? Rate. What are they missing? I mean, what are people missing? When we look back on this, where are they going to say they've made the big mistake? What should they have seen? What's going to get them in the neck? What's going to have them saying, "I wish I had just"? And what should that be, Michael? Uh, I think I think what a prudent investor should do, and that is um, take take more profits when prices are high, when volatility is low, and everything feels great. Um, the fact of the matter is. We are higher. We were up, what, three times from the bottoms of the market in uh, 2009. Um, and, and prices are stretched on a trailing basis. You're looking at a price to earnings multiple of somewhere around 22 or 23 times, which is in the top 10% of all valuation. It's expensive. Um, and as a result, um, I think, you know, people should be taking at least, at least trimming their, their hedges here as, as we go along. I guess the other thing I would say is diversification is really important. If, if uh, A lot of our clients are still very, very American-centric. Uh, and there's some wonderful opportunity outside the country. Um, and it's, it's, you know, the dollar has stopped going straight up, which is a difficult thing to invest overseas. You're not anti-American, um, are you? Because I'm, I'm, <laughs> there's really no place for that on, this, on the forecast. What, what, was, what, was, what was your first, what was one of your creeds, something about making money, capitalism, free flow of information and, and Yes, and that America's the greatest country on earth, yes. It doesn't mean it's always the best investment on the, on the planet at any we point. We can make money so, off of all of those uh, lesser countries is what we can do, yes? You, you can, that, there you go. You call all it right. whatever you want. The fact is there's some really dynamic and interesting opportunities around the world. And uh, I, think, I think you asked me what people would, would sort of give themselves a, a dope slap for. I think the, the, uh, the opportunity uh, has been great in the American markets and the U.S. markets. They've, they've gone up tremendously, but they've outperformed European and, and, and other and certainly emerging markets over the last seven or eight years. I think there's some there's some opportunity there, and and people need to think about diversification. Okay, so as Michael just said, you know we've got stuff that's expensive, and we should probably trim it back. It, what you heard from Michael, uh, and you should everybody should write this down. Here we go: buy low, sell high. Vogelzang says it's high. Okay, so Michael, now I want to change here before before we lose you tonight. I want you to stick with me for a few more minutes. I'm looking at this huge push for tax cuts in Washington. And, and I'm confused. I got to tell you, I'm confused about this because I hear the Federal Reserve saying, we now are going to taper our portfolio and we're going to start to sell things and let it run off. And then they say, we're going to raise interest rates in, in December because we think the economic data are compelling uh, and that they are beginning to grow and that, and that we need to begin to remove monetary policy and monetary accommodation. And so we're going to tighten money supply. So they're seeing the economy improve. And the Federal Reserve, with some pretty smart economists, I think, are out there saying we're going to, we're going to go ahead and put the brakes, start tapping the brakes 
here economically. And then from the administration and from the fiscal side of the House, from the Treasury Department and even lots of people in Congress and the President say, we need a tax cut. We need fiscal stimulus. We've got to get things going in this economy. So which is it, Michael? Who's right? I mean, interest rates are 2.35 percent, something like that. The dollar's okay. I mean, we're not seeing a lot of inflation. Who's right? I'm confused. Are you confused? Doggone it, Mr. Farr. You always ask the toughest questions. Ah, thank um, you. No, no I, 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 think, I think, look, economically, there's not much, uh, there's not much argument about it. The, the, the global uh, economic cycle is about as synchronized as it's been in a generation. And, and I, think, I think the economy is very strong around the globe, including the United States. You see that in the employment numbers. Um, you know, do I, do I think that we've got some significant problems in the tax code? And I think that's what the Republicans are trying to argue, is that, you know, we've got literally hundreds of billions of dollars trapped offshore, if not trillions of dollars trapped offshore, is effectively a tax dodge, tax dodge by corporate America. There's enormous ways to put that money to work that, that does become more productive. And, and I, think, I think it's some of the um, deep inefficiencies that are built into our tax code. Uh, that 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 they're really trying to wrap. But but if they get that cash, the won't they just do? Well, if they get that cash, won't they just do stock buybacks again? I mean, they they they've had a lot of cash. They've increased borrowing. They've had cheap money for a long time. They're not doing infrastructure spends. They're not doing the R and D kind of spending. They're not doing the business investment, are they? Oh, I think they would. I think if you put if you well, first of all, they're both good for the economy. They're both good for the stock market for sure. Um, you know, the, the, but the fact is, you put you put uh, you know. Um, additional billions of dollars in the hands of, of uh, these corporate American CEOs. They're competitive folks. They want to win, and, and that money would find its way into the economy, um, whether, it's, whether it's through share buybacks, which, of course, just take money out of, out of shareholders' hands, and they've got to reinvest it someplace else, uh, or, or directly into R&D or, or capital improvements. Um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's, um, the tax code in the United States is a mess particularly from a corporate perspective. And I don't think anybody would really argue with that. That's why you've got all this really weird behavior going on, like keeping money offshore and not repatriating it. Um, the, the fact is it's a deep competitive disadvantage, and whether we like to think about it or not, we are at a competitive um, competitive game, competitive war with uh, the rest of the world, and, and we need to be as efficient and as powerful and as strong and as, 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 um, as dynamic as we can be. And, and trapping all that money offshore doesn't do anything. So I think that's really what's going on with the tax code. Uh, I don't think there's going to get a whole lot done. There might be a little bit done. I was reading some, reading some commentary about that today. Uh, but certainly nothing sweeping as a full-fledged tax uh, redo across the board. Well, so, we we, 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 we mentioned, you know, we mentioned too last week on the forecast that Charlie Cook, one on one, had told us that he doesn't think there's going to be any kind of tax reform enacted at all. But I read another article, Michael, and Charlie Cook, by the way, is awfully good. So I read another commentary by this guy, Michael Ivanovich. Boris, got to be a buddy of yours somewhere, uh, is an analyst on world economics and geopolitics. He was the senior economist at the OECD in Paris, international economist at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, taught economics at Columbia. But so, you know, Vogel's saying, this sounds like a smart guy to me. He starts quoting, uh, he starts quoting uh, Friedrich Hayek. Uh, he starts uh, talking about uh, John Maynard Keynes. And, and, he, and he says that if we have this kind of a tax cut in here, that it will create inflation that will send us into a sure recession and will put us into sort of a demand 
uh, labor push inflation, that uh, price push inflation, that will get out of the Fed's control very quickly. And he was very doom and gloom. And it kind of scared me, mostly because he, he used a lot of big words and he seemed very smart in his argument. I mean, does it yeah, make sense or no? Yeah, he's got a really no? nice resume. Really nice resume. Right? Um, look, I, I, think, I think inflation is, uh, is the fight that... Uh, Guys like us fought when we were early in our careers, right? In the eighties, yeah, oh nineties, and the seventies, and and I, I think I think if anything, the world's got to be worried about again significant deflation. There, there is even with low unemployment in the United States, there is exceptionally low inflation. It seems to be remaining low. Inflation expectations remain low. Um, that's why the Federal Reserve has been able to keep rates as low as they are. I do think it's the wrong bogeyman. I really do, and I think um, I think we need every bit of stimulus we can get. Um, to, uh, to to fight against the forces of deflation. You know, we saw in 07 and 08 what deflation can do to a global economy. And I think the Federal Reserve is, is certainly intent on making sure that doesn't happen. Now, they're clearly feeling more comfortable because they're able to shrink the balance sheet a little bit. But that's going to be a generational thing. They're going to do that over 20 or 30 years. Um, so I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think inflation is a, is, is, is of concern. Um, you'd see rates, uh, the bond, the bond market vigilantes would, would pull, uh, pull those reins pretty quickly and they're just not, it's not happening. All right. So my friend, Michael Vogelzang says we have to worry about getting a little more inflation going. We don't need to worry about, uh, jumpstarting things or taking things too far at this point. Uh, Michael Vogelzang is president and chief investment officer of Boston Advisors, uh, where he's been since 97. How many billions of dollars? It's a huge firm. How many, Michael? We, we, run, a, we run about $5 billion. Michael. About $5 billion up in Boston. Again, one of the smartest guys I know. Uh, Michael Vogelzang, thank you so much for joining us here on the Farcast. Thanks, Mike. It was really fun. I appreciate it. hope I get a chance to come back. We do, too. Thanks. This is Forecast, wealth strategies and investing advice for you. Ken Polcari, I know near and dear to your heart, is the Headstrong Project. They've got an event coming up October 16th, the fifth annual gala on New York's Chelsea Pier 60. Tell me what it's about. The Headstrong Project is a charitable organization started five years ago by returning Afghanistan and Iraqi vets to help these returning vets deal with the hidden wounds of war, those wounds that are mental, the PTSD wounds, the, 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 the wounds that these guys, young men and women, suffer from and take them deep, deep, deep into the darkness. And so the Headstrong Project has been around for five years. We have saved 100% of every veteran that comes to us. And some of these guys and women are at deep, 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 dark places in their life. And yet this project, we've partnered up with Wild Cornell Medical Center. We're now in New York. We're in Houston. We're in San Diego. We're in D.C. We're in Chicago. We're in L.A. And we're moving on to Denver. And so it's been a great, great organization. Uh, we have the Big Gale event. So far, we've actually just cracked a million dollars in sponsorships and ticket sales. By the, end of, by the end of the 16th, I'm hoping we break $2 million at this event. And as the auctioneer, I'm hopeful that I'm oh able God. to raise that bar. Oh, my God. If anybody can raise the bar, you can raise the bar. Uh, so, um, U.S. veterans, uh, it is, I mean, uh, we can never be grateful enough. October 16th, the right. Headstrong Project in New York, uh, helping people with the hidden wounds of war and PTSD. We'll put a link on the site. Kenny Polcari, Managing Director at O'Neill Securities. Thank you, buddy, for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast.
There it is, my favorite song again, Boris. You know how I love that song. It's hard to keep my feet still when I hear those. You come to Moscow. We dance to this all night. <laughs> we dance. After, it's going to take a lot of vodka to get me dancing to that, Boris. We have plenty for you. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, all right. Welcome back to the Farcast. We're so glad you're with us. A fabulous discussion uh, with Michael Vogelzang from Boston Advisors. Really a very smart guy. We're glad he was able to be with us tonight. We've got some great guests coming up for next week's Farcast, too. We have, uh, and, and next week in the Farcast, uh, we're going to talk about wealth disparity. Now, this is kind of a third-rail discussion that a lot of folks are not eager to touch. That the percentage of wealth that's being accumulated in relatively few hands seems to be hot politically. I don't look at it politically, I look at it economically. And it makes a big difference. So why are the rich getting so much richer? Why does the middle class not have any more dollars in their pockets than they really did in 1997 or 1998 adjusted for inflation? And what difference does that make to the economy? And what difference does that make to markets? That's next week, and I think that's going to be a really robust discussion, and uh, I, I'm, I, I hope it's not our intention ever on the forecast to offend anyone. I, I have a notion we probably will. That's not the intention, and I hope you'll listen with something of, with your open ears. I'm not making, uh, I'm not, I'm not vouching or, or trying to side with Republicans or Democrats or liberals or conservatives. I'm trying to get to the economic data so we can begin to understand markets better. And if there is an economic problem, and I think there may be, so we're going to talk about that next week. Matt Leffingwell is a political analyst with Farr, Miller, and Washington with us here every week to explain Washington and how Washington's going to affect Wall Street. He ran the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, we are very glad that he is with us. You're just surprised I got that right, aren't you? Uh, actually, it's the Appropriations Committee. He... <laughs> But happy, so, happy so, Columbus Day. So I screwed a happy Columbus Day to you. Uh, he ran House Appropriations. Well, you spent more money on House Appropriations Committee. That's right. All right. So much for Ways and Means. Those people at Ways and Means are going to be surprised good, to find out they, that you were really are. running yeah. Ways and Means, too, as well as appropriations. That's easier to say. Uh, it, it is. I don't have to think as hard appropriations. That's good. Okay. So, Matthew, uh, there was an article uh, today in the Washington Post by Larry Summers. Now, Larry Summers, along with, you know, the, his first, when you, when you ask Larry to give you his bio, the first thing he wants to tell you is he's the past president of Harvard University. And then he'll tell you that he was Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. I mean, you know, when, when you think about the Secretaries of the Treasury from Alexander Hamilton all the way through, that might rank a little higher, though uh, Harvard University has been around a good deal longer than the United States. He was also economic advisor to President Barack Obama from 2009 through 2010. So Summers called, wrote this op-ed called An Atrocity of a Tax Plan. And he said, the Trump administration's tax plan is not a plan. That was the first sentence. You're supposed to start with a strong opening sentence when you're writing some sort of an essay, and that's a good one. It is a melange, that's how you know he was at Harvard. It is a melange of ideas put forth without precision or arithmetic. Good second sentence. It's not clear enough to permit the kind of careful quantitative analysis of its expected budget costs, economic effects, and distributional implications that precede such legislation in a serious country. Okay, well, even I, I, I had to parse some of the words, but I, I, got, I got most of them after I got past melange. So tell us, 
Is this, you, you're seeing this tax policy, Matthew, coming from the administration. It was a serious plank in the campaign. What are we seeing different this time? Is this the way other administrations get policies to Capitol Hill? Talk to us a little bit about this. Yeah, let me try to give you a behind-the-scenes look at how this starts off as an idea then is actually implemented and passed into law. And President Summers should know this because an administration is responsible for laying out the vision, giving you some, some basic groundwork of how they want Capitol Hill to actually write the legislation. Now, I'm going to compare this situation to how Obamacare uh, came, into, came to fruition. The Obama administration, if you recall, came out with a number of ideas that they floated on Capitol Hill. You socialized them. You know, there's a sing- idea of the single-payer uh, single system, for example. What do you mean you socialize them? You socialize. You go up to Capitol Hill. You, you measure how many votes. You schmooze. You schmooze. You schmooze. You go out and sell these Who ideas. Who Who do they send? Well, right now it's, right now it's Gary Cohn and it's uh, Secretary Mnuchin. And that, those are the people who are out there socializing the ideas that were, that were really, uh, you know, drafted in this, this you know, big-picture plan that we know not all of it will happen, but they have to start from somewhere. So you send some senior guys. Absolutely. From the White House yep. to Capitol Hill. Yes, that's right. And that's what's happening. That's what happened in Obamacare. That's what happened, uh, you know, in other big, you know, uh, big pieces of legislation. That's what happened with Dodd-Frank. You have to start with the vision and the principles of, of the executive branch if they want this to be an enormous victory for them. I just read that today, though, that Ivanka Trump is now being enlisted to help sell this tax plan as well. I think Ivanka Trump could certainly sell it to me more easily than almost any. I promise she could sell it to me a lot easier than Gary Cohn could, with all due respect for Mr. Cohn. I'm going to get I'm going to get thrown off, aren't I? Okay, now wait. Just let's let's just take a second and be clear here, because you you just you're saying that the more regular way that um, uh, the Obama administration handled Obamacare. You're not making a political comment that the Obama administration did something better than the Trump administration. You're just telling us what has happened in the past that's, that's more protocol, exactly. right? More but, normal? Yeah, but what I would say, the difference here is that it, during Obamacare, there was a very tight leash and the legislative text that was sent to Capitol Hill. You actually had legislative affairs inside the White House, Obama's White House, sending the House and Senate language that they wanted included in the final piece of legislation. There was a very, very tight leash. Now it seems as though the White House has given this like you know, big-picture idea of what they want to happen and has handed off the responsibility to the House and Senate uh, you know, Ways and Means Committee, which I did not work on. <laughs> and, uh, and, and say, as far as you and, know. And, right, as far as I know. According to the forecast, you then, were there forever. <laughs> and then they, they're, they're putting the onus on them to, to write this legislation. I'll skip one more thing, though, about Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin is that the issue with them is that they're already getting beaten up for their credibility and the facts that they're laying out in their media media sales pitches. So they are, are weakened uh, salesmen going into this this early in the process. It's going to be a problem later on. But you're saying they don't, they don't have great details. They don't have a tight list of get these things done to start with, right? I mean, they've got sort of these general ideas. And so we, we don't know actually what they're selling. I mean, one, I think, of Secretary Summers' points was that, that we really don't know. We don't have anything to do arithmetic on at this point. We really don't. And it's probably a little premature for them to be go, going out and stating some of the facts they are. For example, on Good Morning America, there was a little bit of a misfire there that they were criticized for. Um, but they need to be... Cred- wait, 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 wait. I love misfires. What one was that? <laughs> that was, uh, I believe that we was... We never have them here on the podcast. <laughs> I believe it was this morning. 
Yes, and and it was it, I, I can't remember the actual fact, but they were beaten up pretty hard in the media this morning. Oh well, I always like it when any politician gets beaten <laughs> up in the media, but I, I like it to be juicier than that. Okay, so keep going. Tell okay. So, so this is not happening the way it normally happens, and what about it is making it more difficult? I mean, so what could is this going to make it more difficult to get this thing passed? Yes. Why? why? I mean, it seems to me, I mean, I kind of get it. If you give me some general fluffy ideas, I could say yes to those, right. and you don't give me any hard facts to object to. But but it doesn't sound like that's working. It sounds like I'm making up my own hard facts if you don't give them to me, and I'm going to object to it anyway. That's, that's exactly right. And you have to have the administration out there selling this legislation throughout the process. And if you think we discussed this last week, but... If we're going to put the timeline with less than 35 days in this in this legislative calendar for the calendar year, with the breakup of the of the holidays, you have to have sales sales folks Gary Cohn, Steve Mnuchin, Ivanka Trump, who have the credibility and the momentum to get this through into 2018. Okay, so this does this look like it's going to happen to you? I mean, last week you said you thought we'd get some sort of tax reform, maybe, or I, I think the probability of this happening has gone down since in the, the past week. In the past week, absolutely. Because I think things change that fast. Yeah, I mean, this I, is I think, serious stuff. We can really lose a probability like that in a week. I, I really believe it. I think Gary Cohn and Mnuchin, who were tapped by Mnuchin, this person, Mnuchin, 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 sorry, Mnuchin, I was sorry, <laughs> sorry, Mr. Secretary. Sorry, Mr. Secretary. <laughs> uh, but uh, but but these two gentlemen. Well, we want to have him on the forecast. I, I don't want him to say that. you don't even know. How to say my name, but, but I think you know. you know. I think the reason that, <laughs> he's going to come it, on and say hello, <laughs> Mr. Fur. <laughs> but I would say that these guys were well regarded by on Wall Street. I think Wall Street, seeing these two these two gentlemen out there in the White House, gave them some some uh, confidence that a plan like this could actually happen. Now they've had a very bad week selling the plan, and if you who else are you going to have do it? And you have to, it, it, traditionally, it's always been the secretaries. And the, and, the, and the economic advisors, the ones with jurisdiction or the ones that actually have some, you know, expertise in the topics out there selling these. Well, one thing that we did talk about last week was that I think is really important that we remember is timing, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're coming into year end. We know that we've got a Federal Reserve that's going to hike something again probably in December. We know that Janet Yellen's term is up uh, in the first of the year. I think it's February. Yes, February. February for for, uh, Chair Yellen. And she might be reappointed. Who knows? I mean, look, here's a Here's a president who's trying to get a stimulus package passed. We have the most dovish Fed chairman I think we've ever had in the history of Fed chairs. So why would he want to get rid of her? Why, you know, folks are saying, you're going to hear this first on the forecast. Okay, here we're going to go. We're going to break news right now. I'm going to tell you that Donald Trump is going to reappoint Janet Yellen and that everybody who thinks that he's going to, report, he's going to appoint someone who's more hawkish and, and wants higher rates and is going to be, he doesn't want hawkish. He wants this economy to go wild. That's going to be his legacy. That's his touchstone. That's his imprint. That's his imprimatur on his presidency, I think, is to make the economy go wild. He doesn't want anybody raising rates while he's cutting taxes and trying to get things to catch fire. Right. Right? Yep. So, so that's my prediction. I think that Janet Yellen is going to stay. But uh, if he wants to get anything through Congress, I mean, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. When, over the course of the next year, I mean, 2018 is an election year. Absolutely. You know, we talked about this. It, it's, the other challenge for him is keeping the momentum through the holidays where everybody stops. These bills are – the timeline right now is that the Capitol Hill expects that the tax legislation to be marked up in committee in November. 
if they can't keep momentum going into the new year with th- less, again, less than 35 days in the calendar year to go. 35 days. These guys are only going to work for 35 more days this year? Yep. How many are you going to work? I'm, I'm going to work each and every day. Uh, every minute of every day, every hour. I wake up in the middle of the night, of course, thinking about my clients and their best interests. What am I, new? You think I'm going to fall in? Really? Uh, okay. I mean, for God's sake. I mean, but, some, but, somebody other, you know, other than my father may be listening right now. <laughs> I have to be careful here. I have to make one more point about that. I mean, Donald Trump did two very interesting things over the weekend like he typically does. One is he you know, perpetuated this war of words with Senator Bob Corker, who he desperately needs on his side if there is going to be a tight vote in the Senate on taxes. Second, uh, the second is, is he called Chuck Schumer. We talked about his relationship, his budding friendship with Chuck Schumer. They hugged they in the hugged. Oval That's Office. That's right. Well, he called Chuck on romantic. Saturday morning and asked him if there's any chance we could get a repeal replace. Obamacare bill going again when everybody else has said that this is dead. So so he's talking about that and then tweeting about it, and then he's risking his relation, critical relationships in Capitol Hill. Meanwhile, the other members of his administration are trying to keep their eye on their ball with tax reform. As Bob Corker said, at times it does feel as this is this is an adult daycare center. Well, we, you know, whatever is going on in the White House, it may be the most brilliant plan we've ever seen. Time, I guess, will tell. Uh, it, it doesn't fit many uh, historical patterns. I will tell you that I've gotten to know Bob Corker fairly well over the years. I met the man with no opinion of him whatsoever. His success as a business person, his success in starting a charity that housed thousands of, of uh, low-income people and very needy people, his say, he looked up after he had sold this company that he started and said, all right, now I'm going to give back even more beyond the charitable, and I'm going to become mayor of Chattanooga. He didn't have to do it. He was a multimillionaire. And after he really ran a successful budget in Chattanooga, Tennessee, he came along and said, I'm going to run for the Senate. When you ask him about how you get all of the Republican things done and what's, what's good for the Republican agenda, uh, he says, you know, I don't worry as much about the Republican agenda as America's agenda. He says we shouldn't have 62 uh, senators that are uh, who are Democrats or Republicans. He says, you know, when our numbers are more evenly divided, we have a robust debate. We each bring, in good faith, our own opinions and our own agendas, and we argue. And then we find compromise. And in that compromise, we make good policy for this country, and that's what we should be doing here. Look, I have enormous respect for this guy. Uh, anybody who wants to tarnish him, I, I think, is uh, barking up the wrong tree. I really do. This is a good. So, uh, this is not an ally I would want to lose were I president. No, that's right. He's he is well regarded in the Senate. He's regarded as being mild mannered, a deal cutter, and someone someone who can who can find. He's a mayor. These mayors make the best legislators. Because they always had to get stuff done. They had to fix the potholes on the streets. The, you know, they had to you know do this, clean up the parks. They it, 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 the results were always tangible when you're mayors. So when they come into the U.S. Senate in a you know deliberative chamber like this, they they are make the absolute best legislators. We're, we're running over, oh, and, sorry, and it's sorry. always the best stuff when I get to talk with you, Matthew, and, you, and get you to weigh in on this stuff. I want to ask Christina one more question, though. Christina, from an investing investing perspective. Are, is Wall Street counting on this tax cut? I mean, have they baked in our, our, our stock? What are stocks going to do if we don't get tax reform? 
I don't know that I'd say it's it's baked in. I think there's a lot of skepticism about what uh, our president is going to be able to accomplish at this point. And I'll bring it back to the client because I always think that's an interesting perspective. Um, you know, our clients prior to the election and after the election were calling to find out what we thought was going to happen to the economy, to the markets, to the stocks in their portfolio, what were our thoughts. There was a lot of concern. There was a lot of excitement, depending on who you spoke with. Um, I have not heard from anybody about this uh, tax proposal that was put forth a week or two ago. And that's really surprising to me. And what that tells me is that uh, even the folks that may have supported Mr. Trump initially, uh, they don't think there's a good chance of this getting done based on the fact that he hasn't been able to get anything done up until now. Okay. Well, now stay with us because we're going to be back in a second. But Christina Saunders is a certified financial planner, a senior vice president at Farr Miller in Washington. She's going to be here with her great wisdom and experience to continue to weigh in. I tell you one thing I do every day, folks is I pray for the health, the well-being, and success of the President of the United States. I hope you do, too. Stay with us on the Farcast. We're going to be right back. This is Farcast, wealth strategies and investing advice for you. This portion of the Farcast is brought to you by the nation's capital, Humane Rescue Alliance, dedicated to ensuring the safety of welfare of all animals in our nation's capital. The Humane Rescue Alliance protects and serves more than 60,000 animals annually. HRA's programs range from rescue and adoption to humane law enforcement and low-cost veterinary services. These programs are supported almost entirely by private contributions by individuals who support the mission to protect and defend homeless, abused, and abandoned animals. Visit HumaneRescueAlliance.org to learn how you can support these life-saving programs. This is just a great group, and I hope you take a look at them, folks. This is Forecast, wealth strategies and investing advice for you. Welcome back to the Forecast. I'm sure you're up and your feet are moving, and you're probably dancing across your living rooms right now. Hard to sit still when you hear that kind of music. Just fabulous, isn't it? We're so glad you've joined us again here for the Farcast. We've had a fabulous, fabulous Farcast today. We, we, we had Michael Vogelzang explaining his view from Boston Advisors. In Boston, they manage five, over $5 billion. Uh, Michael is one of the brightest we have in the business. Matt Leffingwell, uh, a senior, uh, he's our uh, economic at, uh, analyst at Farm Miller in Washington, and he was on the House Appropriation Ways and Means Committee. Uh, I'm just going to lump them all together. And and by the way, I hope you I hope you really en enjoy that as much as I did. The, and the best part about it is he's got a great radio voice. You know, I mean, really, I, I'd love to have that. That's a great voice. I'm going to try and practice that voice. I really am. I don't think I can do it, but I'm, I'm well. I'm going to try. I'm going to practice in the mirror. It's coming up. Uh, so Christina Saunders, uh, certified financial planner, senior vice president at Farm Miller in Washington. We have a great guest now, and this is a cool topic. Okay. Uh, maybe you've heard of them, cyber currencies, cyber currencies and bitcoins, and there are others. And then there are, there's this other thing you may or may not know about called mobile pay. A lot of people are beginning to pay for stuff using their iPhones or uh, Android phones. So if you've got a phone, you can pay. You don't need to carry your wallet anymore, but you don't need to pay in any kind of a currency that is attached to any particular country. You don't have to pay with dollars or euros or yuans 
or you name it, pesos, you can pay in bitcoins or another, uh, other types of cyber currencies. So I look at these things, and I've actually written about them. They work on a computer network uh, called blockchain, uh, where, where basically uh, a group of computers around the world actually recognize, recognizes various codes that support your ownership. But the value of a cyber currency is set by a market price, by buyers and sellers. What it's not set by is uh, some sort of asset that backs it. So it's not set by gold. You I mean, we used to have the gold standard here in the United States until Richard Nixon got rid of it in 1971 or 1972, thought it would be easier to manage an economy if we weren't tied to the gold standard. And that's when we became a fiat currency. What's a fiat currency? A fiat currency, a currency is worth something because the government says it's worth something. So uh, this currency is the full faith and credit of the United States. And that, that is, that, that's enough for most anybody uh, around the world. So I, I, I tried to, I've tried to buy some of these, and I'm going to get our next guest to really help me uh, buy some Bitcoin if he thinks that that's what I should be be buying because I want to learn about these things. I've decided the best way to learn about a horse is to buy a horse, uh, <laughs> uh, which is all fun and you know, games and seems like such a great idea until you have to clean the stall. Uh, and I, I don't want to learn that particular lesson. Okay. Uh, and on that note, Jameer Morrow, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jameer. Jameer Morrow is an expert's expert. Uh, Jameer um, has his Bachelor of Science in Computer Science uh, from North Carolina A&T State. He has his Master's of Engineering Management from Drexel University in Philadelphia. He is currently the Senior Principal Information Security Analyst on the in the Global Security Offices uh, of Symantec. Okay, so this is the man. Hey, Jameer, welcome very much to the Farcast. Thank you very much. I am happy to be here. Well, uh, thank you very much. This is a great honor for us. Tell us, Jameer, uh, what is a cyber currency to start with? Now, please pretend you're explaining this to my grandmother, will you? Because now, and, my, and know one thing, my grandmother is a lot sharper than I am. So if you could slow it down a little, even from my grandmother. Okay, so a cyber currency, also known as a cryptographic currency, uh, it is essentially a decentralized electronic fund that is allowed to be able to be moved back and forth between two individuals without the need of a centralized, centralized entity, for, for lack of better terms. So you don't need a bank. You do not need a, a, a Western Union. You don't need any of those centralized ways to actually be able to send money back and forth between two, two people. Um, that's essentially what a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency is. Okay, so you and I agree on a price, and we send it back and forth to each other, and we agree that it has some kind of value, right? Essentially. Uh, w now, it's not that we necessarily agree on the price. Um, at the end of the day, the price is set by the market. It, it goes back to the, na this, the name of the game, which is the supply and demand, right? Um, so what you have here is uh, a, a way to send money that can go to any, any let's say, any amount. Now, the current price of a Bitcoin right now is roughly $4,700. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, but a Bitcoin back in April of 2017 was eleven hundred dollars. 
So over a span of five months or so, you now have it jumped significantly in price, right? And okay, no, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Let's do that one more time. Because in April of 2017, April of this year, a Bitcoin, one of these things that really doesn't exist except on my iPhone or wherever, this thing was worth 1100 bucks. Yep. And now it's worth 4700 bucks. That is correct. Okay, why did it go up $3,600? I did that math in my head, by the way. $3,600 and let's see, April, October, that's six months. That's correct. And so, so the reason this has, has skyrocketed is... I was correct it was six months. That was good for me. I did that in my head, too. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So, so the, re- the reason why this has skyrocketed uh, as of late is because of the exposure it's now received. Right. It, it originally started as something that it was completely behind the scenes. And if you ever saw it on mainstream TV, it was already too late. Really? Right. So, so if you've heard anything on mainstream TV, if you saw it come across CNN or mentioned anywhere at any time, by that time, it was already too late. So it's not going to go any higher from here? Oh, yes. It was $4,300 two days ago. Or three what? Days ago. $4,300 two days ago. It's $4,700 today. Yes. Why? Well, so it wouldn't and be too late if I bought it two days ago. It's only too late if I buy it today. That's, that's essentially what it is right now. And, and, and the reason this is happening is because Bitcoin is now... Let's not go too far, but Bitcoin is about to fork into another currency, right? Now, and, and it's going to stay Bitcoin, but it's going to be like another establishment of it where you can own, and if you own the original Bitcoin, you will get some incentive for, for keeping uh, this, this new fork, right? Um, now, with that... It sounds ha- like a stock split. Like, ex- I might exactly. get five new coins for every one that I have, because the capitalization of Bitcoin is somewhere around $80 billion, right? Total. Yes, yes. The no. whole value. If I bought every one of them, I could do it for about $80 billion right now. Mm, yeah, it could be. I haven't looked at it in, in, a, few, in a few minutes, I should say. And the notes, okay, the notes, Jameer... Uh, from Harry Jennings, who runs our, 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 our media and PR, it's about half, slightly more than half of all the digital currency. So mm-hmm. all digital currency is about 160 billion bucks, okay. right? Okay, right, right, so, right. But, so, but that's a lot more than it was in April, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, so like I said, everything goes off of supply and demand. And the situation here is, is that there was only going to be 21 million bitcoins ever made. Right. That's the that's the key. That's it. That's that's with the with the mathematics behind how it is mined and how it is created. There will only ever be 21 million of them. Right. So I think roughly right now we are about we are. I think we have 16 million that are out there right now that have been mined and are now being traded and and, and all of that. Um, so as we get in, as we start to get closer and closer to that to that end goal, right, is people are starting to get more and more into it. And now folks are now saying, OK, we need to really get in on this. And and that's how we really start this jump. So this right. is, but this stuff is anonymous too, right? I mean, it, if I if I pay you in Bitcoin, n- n- nobody can trace that, correct? Not necessarily. It's pseudo anonymous. It, it it is not easily able to be found who did what, right? But it can be found now. There are some specific coins out there now that are, that are claiming to be completely one hundred percent anonymous, right? So with Bitcoin, what what happens here is is once I go to send you something, yes, right, I'll send you some money or I'll send you whatever amount that we requested or we say we're going to exchange. And what happens here is, is yes, it goes from my cryptographic hash, which is what a Bitcoin is, to yours. Okay. Right? And at that time, in that place, now it is completely gone from me now. I, I, if I accidentally sent the wrong place, I'm, it's, it's 
I'm never going to get it back, right? That's that's just how it goes. So you need to make sure you establish a, a complete direct connection with who you want to go to now, right? Wow. But and but the, the the main thing here is with Bitcoin, you can track a Bitcoin's history forever. That's the that's the situation really? right now. It's almost like right now you had a dollar bill out here and you found it on the ground and you saw it and I gave it to my person on my left and I get and she gave it to the person on her left. Next thing you know, I can go back two weeks from now and say, oh, well, I gave it to these two people. Oh, I can right? still find Jameer That's, attached to that Bitcoin. That is why it's on the ah, blockchain. so it's not that anonymous. That is why it's on the blockchain, right? That's why yeah. it's on the blockchain. Oh, okay, but okay, so there was this thing, and if you haven't, there, there's this great book uh, about the Silk Road. So the Silk Road was a site that was developed probably 10 years ago where you could use Bitcoins to buy drugs yep. and, and have them sent to you, and it was all supposed to be fairly anonymous, right. but they could track those Bitcoins? Well, yeah, so again, it's 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 not fully tra- not fully traceable, but at the same time, you can get to the point of them now, right? They're they're not as anonymous as they used to be. Um, so so it comes down to the point, right, where, yeah, you still can do things with them, and people I hate to say it, people still do that, right? That's just what it that's just what it's kind of made for. So some folks are going to always use the they're always going to find the bad way to do something with it, which is like any other any other currency, right? Um, so. You can trade it. You can send it back and forth. But again, it's only if you really are able to attach back who it is. That means, for instance, if I was able to be able to, if I had bought a Bitcoin with my, let's say, my credit card account or something of that of that of that sense, right? If I bought it, and then at that point I sent it to you, so you knew I sent it to you personally. You knew I sent it to you. So now you can say, oh, well, I received that Bitcoin from Jameer. Now that they can come back to me. Now with that. Unless they can absolutely identify that at the point in time of that blockchain item yep. that that I bought that one with my card, yep. then no, it's still going to be hard. You you have to do a lot of backtracking. Okay, to so tell me tell me quickly. There are there are some other types of cyber currencies, cryptocurrencies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, give me a couple uh, and and tell me what the differences is and what differences are and why I would want to own one over another. I mean, what what uh, all of this stuff freaks me out. I got to tell you. Yeah. So so there are, there are multiple currencies out there, right? And and essentially what it comes down to is giving in and buying buying into something you believe in. That's kind of what it comes down to, right? Like is is, is anything else? Like right now, I, I own a couple of a couple of neo coins, right? Neo coins. Neo. Neo. Right? So neo originally established itself as ant shares, right? Uh, say what? It was originally ant shares, but ant it re- shares. Right, but it rebranded its name to be neo. Neo. Right? right. So I own neo as an alternative coin. Okay. Now neo is considered China's erythium. Now. And Arethium is... Arethium, I've heard of Arethium. Right, right. So so what, what you have here is a coin that establishes from the Chinese perspective, right? And and I bought into this coin. First thing is, because of the normal, you buy low, sell high, right? So that was the... Well, I or you hope. Or you hope. Yeah, you absolutely hope so, right? So I, I got in for a couple of different reasons. One, everybody knows what Arethium is, and, and well... If you are in that market, you understand what Arethium is, right? And you understand that Arethium has been pretty, pretty ground, pretty solid. It's been on a pretty good increase over time. It's you know everything falls back when it stays and it stays bouncing around the same amount of amount of money here, uh, at least within this year because it, it skyrocketed from last year to this time. Uh, Arethium did, but I bought into Neo for spe- for specifically one reason. It was Chinese Arethium. And, and and if you know something about the Chinese culture, yes. then you automatically know that they always support their own most of the time. 
Right. Ah. So so if you get in on something like that, that's why I tried it to take that leap of faith and get in a little bit with with a little bit of money. Okay, so I read another article today that said cash is already pretty much dead in China as the country lives the future. Uh, 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 with mobile pay, and and this was someone who'd been to China recently who said they they couldn't they couldn't really operate without mobile pay, uh, some sort of fund transfer, uh, cellular device to cellular device, could not get in a taxi without a mobile pay app, could still use yuan uh, in in McDonald's. It's, isn't it wonderful? McDonald's around the world uh, take cash. Boris, in in uh, in in Russia, you can still still McDonald's uh, with rubles or no? Boris, do you think we can still do rubles, and or do we have to use? Uh, There's only one coin. It's called Putin coin. Putin coin it means yes. if uh, if I give you Putin coin, I also get your house. Yeah, I think that's right, and it certainly works in McDonald's. But it, well, it certainly does in Moscow. It does. Yes, it does. Okay, so. Uh, the, what's what's the difference between the mobile pay and this cyber currency? I mean, I'm still using my mobile device or something to. This is all. I, I I never actually have to hold cash of any kind. Right, but but so the difference is is mobile pay is still attached to your account, right? So like for instance, you, if you use cash. Everybody can find that. Right, so it's almost like they you use Cash it. App or if you're using Venmo or something of that sort where you can make those payments directly from someone no matter if you have a card on you or not. That's what that comes down to when it comes to mobile pay. And, and I hate to say it, it comes down to it that people don't trust what they can't really have in their hands that they are okay with. And what I mean by that is, is that with millennials right now, they really don't trust your dollar, right? And and that, and they they do, but they don't. They much rather have it in a form that they can use because everything is bought now online or some of that some type of way. So, I talked to a friend of mine who hated taking money and then trying to take that to a bank to put it in an account so he now can spend it and buy things on Amazon or whatever you want to call it, right? And that's what it comes down to: pay me right now. So, Jameer, your decision to buy a coin, I forget what it's called, was that based on your desire to use that as a form of transferring funds or whatever? Or did you buy it as a speculative type, hey, this might go up and I, I want to participate? So I, I, bought it on, I bought it on both reasons. One, because I, I did speculate that it was going to go up, but I also bought it to also be able to trade and use to make other money, right? So I, I absolutely believed in it enough to say, okay, I know I can use this also because – for right now, at that point, in another exchange in the China in China's exchange, which is uh, which is called Binance, it was the first coin that was actually allowed to work inside of Binance, right? Um, so, with it being inside of Binance, you could easily use it as the baseline to buy other coins inside of Binance, right? So, so you're going to use it to buy other coins, right? Right. It's just like it's just like Bitcoin right now. For you mm -hmm. to buy any other alternative coin, you need Bitcoins because Bitcoin is grandfather. Oh, my God. I feel so old and so stupid right now. I you mean, are just, not stupid, Michael. I'm telling you, give me a $20 bill and, and just <laughs> I'll, I'll be so happy to try and figure it out. God, this is awful. Transfer okay. it to Bitcoin. It'll be $22 in 10 minutes. I, I, I like that. Well, it would have made 300 bucks apparently, in the past. I think this, this is when you have to read your disclaimer. Honest to God, is this, is this, I've got the disclaimer. Is this gambling? It feels like gambling. No, it's not Yes, gambling. it is. It is very <laughs> yes, speculative. The investment person Oh, well, yes. It okay, you mean, yes. It is very speculative because there's no way to value them. Right. Like, you're just right. buying it based on what the next person's going to pay for it. Right. So it is a very speculative uh, uh, way to go about uh, yeah. investing. Okay. Yeah. There's so, definitely high so volatility. Jameer, sure. we're... 
we're out of time, but I want you to tell us just quickly, if you if you would, if I want to buy one of these Bitcoin things or two of these Bitcoin things, can you give me simple steps to do that? You can come see me after show. After show, <laughs> duh, wouldn't that be? Well, yeah. So I'll have some Putin coins. <laughs> what everybody, what everybody needs is some more Putin yeah. coins. Why don't we have Trump coins? That would be a great cyber, <laughs> cyber currency. The Trump coin. Yeah. Tell, so, I'm sorry, Jameer. Tell me how I do this. No, so so. It's very simple, honestly, to get into it. Nothing uh, about this sounds it, at it, all it, simple, I get, assure you. Uh, it's, two, it's two main sites that I would say you can go try here, uh, and that would be Coinbase and Gemini. I personally prefer Gemini. Now, I used Coinbase for a certain certain amount of time, but I started just liking Gemini and the way it's set up a little better. So I now personally use Gemini a little bit more. So I go on to the, go the, on the internet, site. And, I, yep. and I go to Gemini, and it'll tell me how to do it. Would, right. would you would you do would you buy these things with your credit card? Is it safe? Yes. Yeah, so I'm personally a credit card guy around, period. So I use credit card for everything. Okay. Right, so so I, will absolutely, I absolutely have. I purchased them with a credit card before, and uh, I will continue as well. Do but, you yeah. have any actual money in your pocket right now? I, you know what? The only reason I have money in my pocket is because I needed it when I was down at my school's homecoming this past to buy things on the yard. That's Excellent. the only reason I have that, cash. That was it? They don't take Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants it. Everybody wants Square or something of the sort. So oh, my. That's been Denmark. so frustrating yeah. and disappointing for you. Yeah. Well, okay. Jameer Morrow. Thank you so much, Christina Saunders, Matthew Levingwell, and Boris, of course. Boris, we're so glad you're with us. <laughs> I have one small correction for you. You do. You said uh, you make prediction Janet Yellen will be uh, named uh, yes, head of Federal yes, Reserve. Yes, Janet, yes. I have on good authority my friend Dimitri will be heading that. Dimitri is going to be <laughs> head of Federal Take Reserve. Take that to your bank. It's only a matter of time. Hey, this has been the Farcast. We hope you've learned something. We hope it's been helpful to you. We hope that you'll join us next week. Thank you so much in Washington, D.C. I'm Michael Farr. You need to read the uh, uh, disclaimer. Uh, so I'm not Michael Farr yet. Hang on. <laughs> I have, we have this fabulous head of compliance, and she says, she who must be obeyed says, <laughs> this podcast has been provided for informational purposes only and not to provide investment advice. Prior to providing investment advice, we would need to obtain information such as the investor's specific risk tolerances, objectives, and income thresholds. The securities discussed and described are not recommendations to buy or sell, and the listener should not assume that an investment in the securities identified was or will be profitable. So if you uh, think we gave you investment advice, we didn't. If you think you're going to do something based on something you heard, go check with your advisor. And I thank you one more time in Washington, D.C. This is Michael Farr.